Jesus was walking through Jericho one day, and a blind man named Bartimaeus yelled out at Jesus as she sang in the song, yelled at Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and looked at him and said, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want to see. I want to see. Jesus came to help us see. To see God, to see ourselves, and to see others. He uses a variety of experiences to do that. He did it in the life of Solomon. In my imagination, I picture Solomon living in the lap of luxury, surrounded by opulence. He had everything that modern man thinks he needs to have to have happiness. He had power. He had unlimited wealth. He had amazing wisdom. He had all the sex he wanted any time he wanted. He had freedom to do whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it. By modern standards, Solomon had it made. But something was missing inside. With all of his external opulence and success, something was missing. And I picture him going out of the palace one night incognito, out into the streets. Late in the afternoon and early evening, men coming in from the fields or from their place of work and going to their little homes, and he was standing there in the shadows watching this little house as a man came home from work, tired after a busy day, and his children ran out to greet him and threw their arms around his legs, and he picked them up and hugged them, came into the house. His wife and he embraced, they kissed one another, Solomon standing there in the shadows looking at this scene. They were in the house, small, simple, unpretentious. Father having fun with his children, wife fixing the meal. They sat down, and he could see the radiation of happiness and joy flowing from that home. And he walked back into the palace sat down, and in my imagination, I see him writing these words. With that scene fresh on his mind, he wrote, recorded in the 15th chapter and the 17th verse of the book of Proverbs, better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Better a meal of herbs, King James translates, with love than a fattened calf with hatred. There's no real happiness where there's no love. In the heart, in the home, and in the world. Martha and I lived in Dallas and bought a little house before we came to San Antonio 34-plus years ago. And there was a new house development going on out near us along Northwest Highway. 
And there was a great big billboard sign on this new development. And this was the advertisement on the sign. Happy homes. Three bedrooms, two baths, and a den. Happy homes. Three bedrooms, two baths, and a den. When I saw that sign, I thought, wonderful, but not true. It may be a good house with three bedrooms, two baths, and a den, but you can't sell a happy home, and you can't buy a happy home. A happy home is something you put in a house, large or small, simple or palatial. The ingredient that turns a house into a home is not its size, but its spirit. Where love is, there's happiness. And better, a simple fare with love than a smorgasbord spread where there's hatred, jealousy, bitterness. You see, we cannot have love, we cannot have the attributes of love that I read about a few moments ago from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Patience, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it protects, it trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. There is no way in the world you can have those qualities without the quality giver. There's no way in the world you can, within our own selves, generate within our own minds and hearts, however noble our desires, those attributes without the personification of those values in the person of Jesus Christ. Without Christ in the center of a heart, without Christ in the center of a home, there will not be these qualities enunciated here by the Apostle Paul. They are all the results of His presence within a heart and His presence within a home and His presence within a church, and within a community. I can go out and buy every electric light bulb in San Antonio, but it will not turn any light on in my house. I can bring all those bulbs home. I can put them in the socket. But I still don't have light until I do what? Until I turn on the switch. Until I get outside power to illuminate that instrument. It is the same way with these qualities. These are marvelous potential light bulbs. But there is no way they can shine in your heart or in your home until they are illuminated by the energetic power of the love of Christ within you. And so love is the ingredient that makes a happy home. And love is a four-letter word. And I want to look at the four letters of the word love with you for a few moments this morning and turn it into an acronym. Love begins with L. For me, that means we need to listen. If we're going to find out about love, we need to listen. We need to listen first to God. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through the Bible. He speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through the fellowship of the church. That's why he left us here and told us to get together, not neglect getting together, because that's the way God speaks to us. One of the ways God speaks to us. He speaks to us in the family of God. He speaks to us in the written word of God. He speaks to us through the spirit of God. 
We need to listen to God. If we're we're to know love, we have to know that God so loved the world. We have to hear that, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen to that. Listen to that. And we need to listen to each other. My goodness how we need to listen to each other in our world. There are, there are a lot of voices, but there's not much listening. There's a lot of shouting, but not much listening. Ashley Brilliant has written a book entitled, I May Not Be Perfect, But Parts of Me Are Excellent. Have you read that book? It's interesting. I may not be perfect, but parts of me are excellent. In that book, he says, we communicate in a lot of different ways. We communicate non-verbally. We communicate by the expression on our face. We communicate by the spirit that emanates from us. And it's a very real kind of communication. It's, uh, it's sometimes misinterpreted. Sometimes it's very difficult to interpret. I remember dating a girl in college. Wonderful girl, talented, beautiful. But she pouted. There was always something wrong and you never knew what it was. And, and you would try to find out, well, what, what is it? Oh. That's a terrible way to try to communicate with people because it's so frustrating. And it was frustrating dating her. And so you, you can't find a handle on how to, how to handle the situation, how to find out what the problem is. So I found a handle, a door handle, walked out. I didn't date her anymore. <laughs> I'm tired of trying to be a stethoscope to figure out what, what all is going on. Ashley Brilliant says, when all other forms of communications fail, try words. <laughs> Go ahead and talk about it. What's bothering you, bugging you, making you happy or sad? Talk about it. Many of you have heard the fact, Martha and I, at least once a week, sometimes more. Occasionally we've missed because of illness of one kind or another. But for all of these years, we've had one night a week that we dedicate to just us going out. We had, our children were small. We'd get a babysitter and we'd go out. Sometimes we'd go to a movie and eat. Sometimes we'd just go to eat and talk. But the ground rules for the conversation that night were these. No shop talk, no sharp talk. We didn't talk about church. We didn't talk about bills. We didn't talk about children. We didn't talk about family. We didn't talk about in-laws. We talked about each other like we did when we were dating. Because if we don't keep doing that in our relationships, it can just kind of go stale. Life can be like standing still at the North Pole. You freeze to death. You've got to keep moving, you've got to keep growing, or the relationship will freeze and petrify, and it keeps going and keeps growing because you keep communicating with each other. You keep talking, verbally discussing what's happening inside, hurts and hopes and dreams and fears and whatever might be on the agenda of your life at that moment. So we need to listen to each other. We need to listen to God. We need to listen to others 
and we need to be respectful of others. You know, Dale Carnegie made a marvelous statement. He said, if you want to have friends, you can get more friends in two weeks by talking to people about themselves than you can get in two years by trying to get people to talk about you. You want friends? Get interested in other people. You know, becoming a Christian doesn't automatically make us unselfish. I mean, it's just not some magical thing that happens. When you become a Christian, suddenly you're unselfish. In fact, there's, there are some forms of uh, Christian teaching and preaching that reinforce selfishness. If you've been raised in a spiritual atmosphere where the major emphasis was upon how you feel, and you're, you're constantly manipulating and tampering with and working with the machinery of your own spirituality, and you're just consumed with yourself and not concerned about other people, you don't have the Christianity that Jesus came to talk about. Jesus came to get us off our own hands. Jesus said, forget yourself. Lose yourself in love and concern for other people. Others. Have you ever noticed that we sometimes treat strangers with greater kindness than we do people we live with? Nicer to people that wait on us at a restaurant than people who are spending their life with us. Just the everyday little common courtesies. We begin to take each other for granted. It's a terrible thing to do. I have a poem here for you men, for, for all of us men. A woman, good sirs, doesn't ask for a lot or expect to be always adored, but she wants at the least to be noticed and not, as soon as she's married, ignored. It isn't your face or your fatness of purse that leaves her in time disenchanted. She knows she was taken for better or worse, but she will not be taken for granted. <laughs> I can see a few men applauding. That's good. <laughs> Terrible to take people for granted, people we live with, people we love. Terrible to take all the good things we have for granted. We take church for granted. We take freedom, living in America for granted. lose appreciation for those things. And familiarity, I don't believe, breeds contempt, but it does breed indifference. We need to keep others foremost in our relationships. L-O. V, vitality. What are the ingredients of vitality? Well, humor is one of them. If you don't have a sense of humor, get one. How do you get it? Well, get to know God because he has one. One reason I know God has a sense of humor is because he made us. <laughs> if you ever wonder whether God had a sense of humor or not, look at yourself in the mirror. There's the reason. You know he has a sense of humor. And you, really, you know what a sense of humor it really is? It's just the capacity to objectify life, to not take yourself so seriously, take what you're doing very seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously, and kind of stand back and look at the foibles and the and the paradoxes and the ambiguities that take place in life and just kind of laugh about them. 
We do that when we see it on the screen or on television. We need to do it when we see it in ourselves. Uh, one of my favorite comic strips is BC. And I have one I tore out a few weeks ago. It's on my desk at home. The little guy is up on top of this ball mountain, you know, not a tree, not a blade of grass, nothing. And he's standing up there and he's looking up and he's saying, God, if there is a God, show me. Nothing happens. He starts walking down the side of the mountain. Barren, desolate place. But suddenly over him is just a shower of rain that looks like a flood. Just on him. Not on anything around him. And he just follows him down the side of the mountain. And when he gets down the bottom of the mountain, standing there, just rain on him. No rain anywhere else. He looks out at us, the reader, and says, There is a God, and he has a sense of humor. Well, my friends, there is a God, and He has a sense of humor, and He'll give you that kind of healthy objectivity to life that can help you step back sometimes and just laugh at it. Take what you do seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. Another ingredient necessary to vital living and to love is work. We need to work. God Himself worked. He commissioned us to work. We're supposed to work. Paul says, if a man will not work, he ought not to eat. Now, notice, he didn't say if a man cannot work. If a person is unable to work for physical reasons or infirmity of one kind or another, then they need all the welfare we can give. But if a person will not work, that's another set of circumstances. We need to work. God work, wants us to work. Emerson said, my work is my life preserver. We need to be working. You're working at God's work, doing the work you do in the world. That's your calling. As much as this is my calling to try to preach and teach and pastor a church, your calling is just as much of God, whether it's in the office of the military, teaching school, or wherever you might be. That is your calling. Your vocation is God's calling for you in the world. You are doing the work of God in the world by working creatively and positively and helpfully for others and for yourself and for your family. Rest is also necessary. Not just sleep, but recreation. Even God rested. God took a day off. God was no workaholic. He took a day off. We need to do the same. We need to rest. Salier, the great doctor that's done so much research in stress, talks about the necessity to change the level of stress. I read recently about some trees in Poland that were dying, and they were dying because they continued to produce foliage, and they checked the soil, and the soil had too much uh, ammonia salt in it, and that was causing the tree to keep, to keep living for 12 months out of the year and, and, and producing foliage 12 months out of the year. And the tree was dying because the environment in which it was living wouldn't let it sleep. It was being overstimulated by the ammonia salts. Well, you and I can be overstimulated in our work by the environment in which we live and it can kill us. If it happens to trees, it can happen to people. It does. It does. So we need... Work, we need rest, we need humor, and we need relationship. We need relationship. 
vital part of a happy home is a happy sex life. Now, I know what happens in the minds of a lot of people the moment a pastor mentions sex. I grew up thinking the pastor I had never knew anything about sex. And Martha is not singing in the choir today. She's sitting down here because we have friends and guests here. She's normally up here. And, and I'm kind of glad she's down here today because when she's sitting up here where everybody can see her, when I mention something about sex, and I tell something funny about sex, like when I talk some time ago, a number of years ago, when our children were much smaller, I talked about the fact that the people think that, you know, a pastor's, they have children, obviously, but certainly they don't have them in the same way everybody else has them. <laughs> I mean, they just can't do that sort of thing. And if they do, they, they don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's just their duty. That's something they've got to do. They always do it with a suit on, too. It's all... <laughs> And I said, you know, I, I know people that think that if pastors have children, that maybe their, their wives lay eggs. <laughs> well, Martha was sitting up here, and, and she says, when I start talking like that, she doesn't know what to do. She, she says if she laughs too much, people will think she's a wow. That's something. <laughs> and if she doesn't laugh at all, they'll think she's an iceberg, you know. So she looks kind of like Mona Lisa. I was sitting there. Well, this one Sunday she didn't because when I said that about laying eggs, Stephen was sitting up there on the front row of the balcony and he looked at Martha and he went like this. <laughs> oh boy. I'm glad you're down here this morning, Martha. Well, let me talk about sex for a few moments. Early in the church's life, now the kind of attitude that has been generated in, in the last number of years about sex as far as the church is concerned is, is out of touch with what the Old and the New Testament said about it. God created sex. He made it. He didn't just make us from the waist up. He created us. He, he made it's not good for man to be alone. He created us for relationship. We're made to fit each other, to be one. And God is the one who invented sex. But he said it's not to be done before marriage, and it's not to be done outside of marriage. That's what's best. That's the way it's supposed to be done. Now, two ideas early on in the life of the church in the first couple, 300 years created two, two distorted views of sex. One is that all physical pleasure is bad. All physical pleasure is bad. That's a heresy. That's not so. That's not true. And the second is equally untrue. that sex in marriage was to be in experienced only for the purposes of procreation. 
only for the purpose of bearing children. Now, if that were so, God would have created us so that once we were past the child-bearing age, we would no longer have the capacity or desire to have sex. And that's not so. God intended it not only for the purpose of bringing children into the world, but for enriching the oneness, reinforcing the oneness of a couple. So that all of life, mental, spiritual, and physical, can be a climax of relationship. Ongoing intercourse of mind and spirit, soul, and body. Augustine, the great Catholic theologian, was a profligate before he was converted, lived with a woman, had a child out of wedlock, and then became very, very legalistic and very unhealthy and even unbiblical in his views of sex. And it permeated the whole Christian world because the theology and influence of Augustine is, is strong in the world, and in many areas rightly so because of his experiences and insight. But he said this about sex, and I quote him, Shame attends all sexual intercourse, even in marriage. And he said that even in marriage, sexual relationship between husband and wife was a venal sin unless they were intending to and desiring to have children. And so out of this has come the idea that you ought not to have any kind of family planning, any kind of birth control. Listen, my friends, I believe every child has the right to be wanted. Every child has the right to be wanted and loved and cared for. Do you realize that every day a city the size of San Antonio is being born in the world every day? Every week a city the size of Mexico City is being born in the world? Think of it. Children have the right to be wanted and loved and cared for. There are some distorted views of sex, to be sure. One is pornography. I believe adults ought to be able to buy or go see anything they want to buy or go see. But I don't believe that we should live in a culture where moral filth and trash is poured into our homes for young ears and minds and lives to see via television. People say, oh, Buckner, you've got to be realistic about the world. Look, don't talk to me as a pastor. I understand reality. I understand realism. Isn't it amazing how people use realism as an excuse for immoral behavior? Like, well, let's just be real. Let me say this. 
There are filthy sewers flowing beneath our city taking the refuse and the garbage out for reprocessing. I do not have to run that stuff through my living room to prove to my children that it's there. Sure, that's real, but it doesn't have to flow through my home or yours, and we ought to have some control over the indiscriminate exposure of filthy stuff to our children in our home. Pornography is terrible. It's degrading to women. It's degrading to society. Let me say another word or two about realism. God said the biblical sexual morality is no sex before marriage and no sex outside of marriage. That's it. People say, now, Bugner, that's just not the way it is nowadays. I don't care. I, I know how it is nowadays. I can see, I can hear, I can read. But I also know that that's not reality. Let me talk to you about reality for a moment. Young people listening to me, living in a world where premarital sex and extramarital sex is so rampant. Let's talk about reality. Let's talk about unwanted children being born to 12 and 13-year-olds. That's reality. Let's talk about abortion. That's reality. Let's talk about child abuse. That's reality. Let's talk about sexually transmitted disease. That's reality. Let's talk about AIDS. That's reality. If the whole world lived by biblical moral principles, we'd have few, if any, unwanted children or diseases. So leave God out of the picture for a moment and just use pragmatic common sense. One man, one woman, forever makes health and happiness in the home and in society and in the world. That's reality. Another distortion of sex, not only pornography, but lust. Now, you really don't need to have to talk about that a lot. You, you know the difference between attraction and lust. Everybody understands sexual attraction to somebody. You see someone that's beautiful. That's how God made us, so we'd be attracted to each other. That's normal. That's wonderful. Thank God for that. You know, I, I, I can admire a beautiful automobile without going out and trying to steal it. That's wonderful. That's fine. Lust is when we are consumed in our mind and in our imagination with the desire for someone and it just consumes our life. It is a constant preoccupation of our thinking and the only thing that prevents our doing what we're lusting to do is the unwillingness of the other person or the inability to do it in terms of convenience. And when that begins to move into our hearts and lives, we run up the red flag and say, God, help us and help me redirect these thoughts into positive channels of creative love for people rather than destructive love. Sexism is also a form of a distortion of love. Sexism is like sadism. 
to degrade women, to minimize them, to make them second-class citizens, to put them under, is what the word means, is wrong and is inconsistent with biblical Christian morality. Want a vital life? Have a happy, holy, God-directed sex life within the arena of Christian marriage and healthy work and play and humor and you begin to move toward a happy home. And the last word is from the letter E, encouragement, L-O-V-E, encouragement. We need encouragement. The best encourager I have is Martha. And uh, I need it. And she does it. We all need encouragement. Sometimes the people who seem to need it the least sometimes need it the most. And every now and then I run into people who kind of feel like they're only given so many compliments when they're born and they kind of hoard them. They're afraid if they're, they're nice or say something nice to somebody that, they, that uh, they're going to deplete their supply of compliments. And while on that subject, I, I want to say a word. I am sick and tired of the epidemic of negativism that's running through our community, particularly in our city and even in our newspaper. I am tired of it. There are some people that will find something wrong with the second coming. The lights are too bright. The trumpets are too loud. Like two women who went to a concert of a noted violinist and they left, he was world famous, and they left and one woman said, did you ever hear such magnificent music? Wasn't that marvelous? The other lady said, I didn't like it. She said, you didn't like it? What was wrong? She said, I didn't like the way he blew his nose after the second number. Some people hear magnificent music, other people only hears the blowing of a nose. I think the Alamo Dome is terrific. I think the Olympics are terrific. I think the leadership in San Antonio is doing a terrific job. They're not perfect, but God bless them for what they're doing to try to make life better. <laughs> Encourage people. A positive word is what, is what we need. Let me tell you a quick story and I'm through. Carl Erskine was the great pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was my favorite baseball team when they were in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the Yankees in the World Series. Carl Erskine was preaching. Was, well, he was pitching. <laughs> now, why I said preaching was because I was preaching one time in the Moody Coliseum on the campus of SMU. We were having about 10,000 people a night, and we had different sports figures coming giving their testimony. And Bob Pettit came. Some of you will remember Bob Pettit, the great basketball player for LSU. And uh, Carl Erskine, a fine Christian man, of course retired by then, he came and he gave his Christian testimony. And he preached because he had something to say about what Jesus meant in his life. Well, it was an honor to meet him, naturally, because he pitched for the Brooklyn Dodgers and it was the fifth game of the World Series with the Yankees in Yankee Stadium, fifth inning. It also happened to be Carl and Betty Erskine's fifth anniversary. The number five is predominant. The Dodgers were ahead in the top of the fifth inning, and Erskine got in trouble on the mound, and the Yankees quickly scored five runs and went ahead five to four. Charlie Dressen, the manager of the Dodgers, walked out of the dugout, out to the mound, 
And Carl Erskine said, I knew I was headed for the showers. I was gone. Catcher came out. They stood there a moment. Charlie Dressen walked up and took the ball out of Carl Erskine's glove and 70,000 people wondering, was he going to bring in a left-hander, right-hander, another left-hander like Erskine? What's he going to do? And they stood there. No one would ever imagine what they were talking about. Charlie Dressen said, Carl, isn't today your wedding anniversary? He said, yes, sir. It's our fifth wedding anniversary. He said, I tell you what, I want to treat you and Betty to dinner tonight after the game. He said, why don't you go ahead and get the side out and let's win this ball game and then go out and have a good time tonight. And he turned around and went back to the dugout. <laughs> Left him in there. Well, the Dodgers scored a tying run in the top of the seventh. It went to the 11th inning before the Dodgers scored a run. And one by one run, Carl Erskine pitched the game. He put out, nine, he retired 19 consecutive batters. And they won that game and went on to win the World Series. Now listen, God has not come to take you out of the game. He's not come to send you to the showers. He's come to say, look, you can do it. You can do it. Don't be depressed. Let me tell you what to do with the word depression. Take D-E, the prefix off, because that means to reverse. Take D-E off the first and take I out of the middle, and you know what you've got? Press on! Get rid of the negative, get rid of self-concern, get concerned about others, and press on, and like Carl Erskine, you'll win. Love's a four-letter word. Listen, others, vitality, enthusiasm, encouragement, a happy home. Maybe a dinner of herbs, but love will be there and it will be better than the palace where hatred is.